0: Growing and maturing with Christ is really what God is inviting us into. But we know, as we've been saying already, that as we mature with Jesus, we often hit walls in our walk, that we experience challenges that may well seem insurmountable, that sometimes we feel totally inadequate for the task. We sometimes begin to question ourselves. And we even struggle sometimes with the presence of God in our lives. And so when we hear these words of Jesus tonight, he speaks profoundly to us from the cross. See, in Luke 22 and verse 52, Jesus had said that when he would be on the cross, that the world would be full of darkness. This was going to be what happened. I'm not sure that's quite the right verse. That's my mistake, not Jack's, but in the Bible it does say this. I'll find it later for you if you're not sure, but Jesus said that the world would be dark and then as you read through the story of Jesus on the cross, there he has been hanging for some time and indeed in the natural darkness filled the sky. We don't know exactly why this was and We could speculate as to solar eclipses or the gloom of clouds obscuring the sky or something else altogether, but the world turns black. And in the natural sense, there's a very clear and profound representation of what was going on in the experience of Jesus. And into this darkness comes a cry from the dark of Christ's experience, the cry of Christ on the cross. Matthew 27 verse 46 records it for us. My God, my God, Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? It's a troubling thing, isn't it? To hear even at this distance, at this remove from the moment itself. To hear Christ Jesus, his cry, his heart cry of that experience of abandonment. Now Jesus, even in this moment of agony, of physical agony, emotional, mental, spiritual agony, he's opening the scriptures to us. How gracious is Jesus? He's opening it to us in our journey to the heart of the cross and with him onward. For these words are the words that Jesus knew well from the beginning of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 was a psalm that was written in in a moment of David's agony, but prophetically spoke of the agony of the Messiah to come, the King of all kings, Jesus Christ. And in it, you'll find, if you were to read it for yourself, a depiction with just breathtaking detail of what would be inflicted upon Jesus upon the cross. It's a psalm that actually takes you on a journey itself and I would encourage you if you find yourself in these dark moments yourself, read this because right at the beginning of this psalm we find this heart cry of the sense of forsakenness and of abandonment, yet the psalm will lead us to a place of faith and of trusting in God even in such things. And so Jesus here in agony is opening up the scriptures to us. And what he's seeking for us to understand and and what he is living is the fullness of what he has willingly accepted for our sake. What he has accepted upon the cross. Jesus, the night he was betrayed, was in the garden praying to his father looking ahead to the agonies and the, uh, the devastations of what would come. And as he prayed, the Bible says that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in the, in the tension and the agony of these moments. And yet he prayed to his father, you know, saying, If it's possible that this cup should pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Jesus submitted himself willingly to all of this for our sake. What did he submit himself to? Well, it's something that, it wasn't accidental, it wasn't in the moment, this wasn't actually simply the will of of religious authorities, jealous and 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 angry at Jesus. This wasn't ultimately the will of of civic Roman authorities wanting to do away with a rebel. Actually, this is the redemptive, the saving work of God planned for all eternity. And so we find hints about this right at the beginning of the Bible and in Deuteronomy chapter 21. We find um, this truth of what is experienced by Jesus. And talking in that context, they talk about, Bodies not remaining all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. This truth then is picked up in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, where Paul writes that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written here, quoting Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree Jesus Christ Jesus Christ God himself God become flesh Jesus Christ sinless and perfect loving and lovely in every way became cursed for our sake and the scriptures weave this testimony together and there it is perfectly realized in Jesus that he became a curse for you and for me how perfectly does Matthew put it in chapter 20 of his gospel? Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What a saviour. I love the way that C.S. Lewis, writing on one occasion, puts it. He says, God who needs nothing, loves into existence Holy, superfluous creatures. Have you ever thought about yourself that way? From God's perspective, he doesn't need us, but he loved us into existence. How did C.S. Lewis put it? He said, in order that he may love them and perfect them, he creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, there are no tenses in God, the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms, as it is time after time, for breath's sake, hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. And he uses such stark and dramatic, even offensive language to help us to understand quite what is the depth that Jesus Christ has gone to for our sake. Loving us into existence, yet knowing that we will be the ruination of him upon the cross. How could one love so richly, so freely, so truly, and yet he does. And Jesus there upon the cross, loving us in this way, senses this chasm, this separation from the Father. It's incomprehensible, really, to us, isn't it? You know, we can understand how it might be that all too human folks just like us, your Peters or your James's or your Andrew's might scatter and separate themselves from Jesus at his time of need. How we we would all just, you know, save our own skins. And we can understand those kinds of separations, how Jesus would be largely friendless apart from that small group we saw last week at the cross. But to think about this sense of separation from the Father, it's a, a concept that has troubled um, Christians over the ages. And it's true to say that we can see the cross in lots of different ways. The cross is accomplishing uh, just absolutely everything. And, And there are so many ways that we can see the cross. We can see the cross as Jesus Christ being the victor and being the conquering hero over sin and death and hell. And that's absolutely and very true. But one way of seeing the cross is something that's called, and forgive the, the, the language here, but it's called penal substitutionary atonement. Oh, goodness, there will be no test on this at the end. But what it means is that God allowed himself, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice to make amends for our sin in our place. He took all of the punishment, all of the wrath of God upon himself so that we might not suffer under something that we simply could not bear. If the wrath of God is to come upon each and any one of us, then we cannot stand. We would be broken and lost forever. And yet God himself stood under his own wrath in our place. It's a tough thing to understand. There's an old song we used to sing and one of the lines in it is, the the father turned his face away. And people have struggled with it so much that some folks have rewritten the verse because they struggle to understand how can this be? And I understand. And, And we must not for a moment think that somehow the father stopped loving the son. We must not think that. But what we must understand is the weight and the gravity of sin and of the wrath of God righteously laid upon sin. One pastor rejected this altogether and said in his mind it was just cosmic child abuse. I understand how he wrestled with it, but I think he's totally wrong. In fact, as another theologian, R.C. Sproul, put it, there is something cosmic about what is going on, but it's this, that sin is cosmic rebellion. Rebellion that there's an absolute and complete rupture in everything, 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 from every atom that makes us up to the fullness of the universe and everything in between because of sin. And nothing short of God himself upon the cross would heal the wound. Jesus has become both God and man for our sake. He is fully taking on our experience Right at the beginning of his ministry, at his baptism, Jesus takes on our experience. And, you know, he's baptized by John in the Jordan River. And and John recognizes that this is a bit weird. He's like, but you, Jesus, are righteous. You don't need to be baptized. My baptism is a baptism of repentance. What could you possibly repent of? This is the kind of conversation they're having. But Jesus says, I'm going to do it to fulfill all righteousness. And in this, we can see how Jesus is identifying with us. He's entering into our experience, and yet, perfectly, and here at the cross, he's doing exactly the same thing. He is coming into our experience of brokenness, of deathliness, and of sin. He who knew no sin is becoming sin for our sake. Jesus is humbling himself so that we we might be identified with him in his death. And through his death, we might be identified with him in his resurrection life. There's a, um, a philosopher, Kierkegaard, and he, he kind of painted the picture of this as a bit of a fairy tale. Do you like a fairy tale? I like a good fairy tale. But he paints the picture like this to help us to understand what it was for Jesus to humble himself in such a way. He says this. He says, suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. It's a good story already, isn't it? The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet, this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course. But would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and that she a humble maiden and to let shared love cross the gulf between them, for it's only in love that the unequal can be made equal. And in painting this picture, he's describing how it is that Jesus Christ humbled himself. How does the Bible describe it? Being in very nature God. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Yet he humbled himself. He made himself a servant. He came in human form and a humble one at that. And he humbled himself yet further, even to death and death upon a cross. Here's the glory of it that God has exalted this humble servant, Jesus the King, who came to us with a love that we can understand and accept, that we can embrace and that we can return in love. And Jesus exalted now lifts us up into the exaltedness of love. But here's where the story deviates. You see, you and I, and this may not come as a surprise to you, we are not humble, lovely maidens. I don't know. Those of us who are a bit hairy, you know, and bearded, that's probably not a shock. But um, even for the lovely ladies amongst us, in regard to God, we are not humble, lovely maidens. Here's the truth of it. We're broken. We're desperate. We're criminal. We're rebels. We are by nature objects of the wrath of God. Romans 5 verses 8 to 9 tell us this that very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man though for a good one somebody might possibly dare to die but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Not only does he come to us in a humble, holy, wondrous way he comes to us though we do not deserve it at all. And in coming to us, he embraces and enters into the darkness and the grief and the brokenness of our experience, of our world. And let's face it, though there be many glimpses of glory in our world, there is a great deal of darkness too. I don't think I need to labor the point this week as tragedy breaks out in our world here, there and everywhere and communities that thought themselves perhaps immune to acts of terror are brought into something that nobody should ever be brought into. Darkness, desperation, grief. few years ago there was a biography written of mother Teresa. come be my light it's called and it detailed some of her story and her incredible work of of mercy and of ministry on the streets of calcutta amongst some of the poorest and neediest folks in our world and um, Uh, when the book was released, there was one uh, aspect of the book that was seized on uh, by most media outlets because it was quite startling and quite unexpected. I think some folks had known about it before, uh, but it was only really with the release of this book um, that it became well known. And that was that she experienced herself incredible seasons and times of darkness, of grief and of loss, a sense of feeling abandoned, Even within the ministry that was so precious and the faith that she held. The words, and they're a little fractured, um, of her that are recorded in the book. Some of them are like this. This terrible sense of loss, this untold darkness, this loneliness, this continual longing for God. Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God. And then it is that I feel He is not there. They're hard words, aren't they? And I think for many of us, we would perhaps have elevated Mother Teresa and rightly so for her incredible life of ministry. And 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 people perhaps just glancing through the book and not paying real proper attention seized on these words and sought to paint a picture of of a loss of faith of even an atheism but the the truth is that mother Teresa in Christian community with spiritual guides alongside her came to a realization that these seasons these times of abandonment were actually a profound invitation of the God who himself experienced that abandonment And she said that it was an identification for her with the passion of Christ and a form of solidarity with the unwanted, unloved, abandoned, and bereft. That's not in any way to diminish those seasons, the the darkness of them, the desperation of them, and we shouldn't do that. And it may be this evening you're here saying, actually, I've experienced something of that myself. But for her, she found that in those seasons and coming through those seasons, she was able to feel yet more close to God and more close to the unlovely and unwanted folks that she was finding the very image of God in. Again, we recognize that these things, they happen to those who are growing in maturity, to those of us who are willing to go those extra miles on the journey with our risen Savior, who are willing to listen to these difficult words of Christ from the cross and to hear how he would speak to our hearts. If we're willing to grow in maturity and if we're willing to accept the purposes of God for our lives, these things become meaningful. Meaningful even easier to bear. Second Corinthians 4, we read these words. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal Paul the Apostle writing these words light momentary affliction this is a man who was in prison multiple times shipwrecked, beaten with rods, whipped This is a man who was run out of town after town after town in fear for his life, living rough for the sake of the gospel, not knowing sometimes where his next meal would come from. And yet he says, by comparison to the eternal weight of glory, that was a light, momentary affliction. I wonder if we can even speak for Jesus, speaking this cry of abandonment from the cross. What does the Bible teach us? We're looking to him who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, an eternal weight of glory. Something that he could cascade down upon us and so many more, and so he was willing to endure. Joy comes. Glory comes closeness with Christ and with those who are broken and needy but still there is the valley still there is the garden of tears we can't write these things out of the bible nor should we the words of Jesus from the cross are not all words of sunshine and light how could they be And so this evening we have this opportunity to say to Jesus, thank you. Thank you for entering the darkness of our world. Thank you for entering my darkness. Thank you for being my living hope. Thank you that in my griefs and my sorrows, I know that you became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Thank you, Jesus, you give meaning and purpose to these devastations in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our living hope.